0: You're listening to What Does the Word Say? a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine hermeneutics, the principles that we use to properly interpret the Bible. Last time we discussed Hebrew poetry, Parallelisms, and some of the common figures of speech that are used. Dr. Spencer, what would you like to discuss today? I'd like to discuss the issue of context.
1: Whenever we want to understand a passage correctly, we must consider the context. There's a famous saying which goes something like this A text taken out of context is only a pretext for a proof text, which means that when I take some verse and strip it out of its context, I can use it as a supposed proof text for just about anything I might want to propose. Yeah, that practice is all too common, I fear. It is. In fact, we've already seen one example of it. I mentioned in session 39 that Matthew 7, verse 1 is frequently cited out of context and abused. The verse says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And it's frequently cited by someone
0: who's trying to make the point that we should never judge others. And you pointed out in that session that in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, Paul commands the Corinthian church to judge a member who was committing sexual immorality and to put him out of the church. And I pointed out that in Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Watch out for false prophets, which is an implicit command to judge those who presume to tell us God's word. Those are both good arguments against the notion that Matthew 7, verse
1: 1 commands us to never judge anyone. My argument from 1 Corinthians uses the first law of hermeneutics, the principle that Scripture should interpret Scripture, or in other words, that all of Scripture is a unity and cannot contradict itself. And your argument from later on in that same chapter uses the context of Jesus' entire discourse to refute the view. But we can even refute it by looking at the more immediate context of the verse. How so? This verse is in the Sermon on the Mount, which takes up chapters 5-7 through in Matthew, the sermon comprises a number of short, somewhat independent passages. Let me read the entire passage that contains this verse, which includes verses 1 through 6 of Matthew 7. Jesus tells us, quote, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces.
0: Now that last statement about not throwing pearls to pigs is a bit enigmatic.
1: It is, and we'll get to that in a moment, but first let me look at the main idea of judging. First of all, this passage is not talking about judging in a formal legal sense, like serving on a jury. It's speaking about our relationships with one another. Also, it's evident when you look at the whole passage that we are not prohibited from judging others. It is the way we judge that our Lord is limiting in fact, he tells us to first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, we are to help our brother remove the speck from his eye, which certainly requires that we have judged the speck in his eye to be a problem, but we are to be sure that we have judged ourselves by the same standard first and dealt with our own sin. And we are also not to judge harshly or uncharitably, but in love. Our
0: motive should be to help the other person and to build him up, not tear him down. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say that our having had a plank in our eye disqualifies us from pointing out the speck in our brother's eye. That removes what I suspect is the most common retort that comes to mind whenever anyone rebukes us in any way, which is to respond by saying, who are you to tell me this? What about your problems? I agree
1: completely. Whenever we are criticized, we tend to look for fault in the other person rather than listening to the criticism and responding properly. And many times, people refrain from dealing with another person's sin because they themselves have sinned. We've all heard the old expression about having lost the moral high ground, and there's certainly truth to that expression. But Jesus does not let us off the hook so easily. He tells us to deal with our sin and then to also help our brother. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this verse, correctly says that I must not say I have a beam in my own eye, and therefore I will not help my brother with the speck out of his. A man's offense will never be his defense. In other words, my own sin, my offense, as Henry puts it, will never be a suitable defense
0: when I am confronted with my negligence
1: about helping a brother.
0: I think that problem's common with parents. I've seen many parents who were reluctant to deal with sins in their children because they had done the same things when they were young. That's a common
1: problem, but it's also a serious sin. It's compounding our own previous sin as a young person with the sin of not properly disciplining our own children now. Let me give a simple example. Every one of us has told a lie at some point in our life. So is it wrong for me to punish my children for lying? Obviously not. They need to learn that lying is wrong. The fact that I have also lied in my life doesn't change my responsibility to teach them what is right. Of course, I should also strive to speak with absolute honesty so that my children learn by my example and not just my words. We should all strive to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Yes, we should strive for that. But we've drifted off topic. Our point was to show that the context for a verse is important. And a general principle is that the local context is the most important, although we must also remember the unity of Scripture and should never interpret any verse in a way that contradicts what the Scripture teaches
0: somewhere else. All right, let's return to that enigmatic verse at the end of the passage. Christ said, quote, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces, Now, what does that mean?
1: In the context of the passage, the message seems to be that if we have spoken to someone about something over and over, and they have not responded in any way, then we should stop. They have proven themselves to be recalcitrant. Let me quote from Matthew Henry again. He says that, quote, Our zeal against sin must be guided by discretion, and we must not go about to give instructions, counsels, and rebukes, much less comforts to hardened scorners to whom it will certainly do no good, but who will be exasperated and enraged at us.
0: Yeah, that does sound like good counsel, although applying it obviously depends on the severity of the problem we're dealing with and our relationship to the person.
1: Both of those things certainly do matter— And we need, again, to look at all of Scripture for guidance in dealing with any particular issue. Are there
0: other examples you'd like to look at for showing the need to consider the context of a
1: verse? Absolutely. Let's take a look at Colossians 1, verse 15, where Paul writes about Christ, saying that, quote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, unquote. Now, if we take that second clause by itself out of context... We have a clear statement that Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation, which to our modern use of the word firstborn would seem to agree with the teaching of the Jehovah's Witness cult, which denies the deity of Christ. But when we look at the next two verses, 16 and 17, we find that there's a serious problem with this
0: view. Yeah, let me read those verses. Paul writes, "...for by him all things were created." Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When you read those verses, you see the problem immediately,
1: don't you? If when Paul wrote that Christ is the firstborn over all creation, he had meant that Christ himself was created, we would have a contradiction because verse 16 tells us that by him all things were created. And to avoid our thinking that all things here might only mean the physical creation, Paul adds, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, which sure sounds like it would include angels and any other spirit beings that God might have chosen to create. Paul then summarizes that all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These statements are simply incompatible with the view that Jesus Christ is himself created, in other words, a creature, even if you say he is the most exalted of all creatures. He isn't just before this world. He is before all things. And he isn't just the creator of this world. He is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible.
0: I find it disturbing that the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, known as the New World Translation, inserts the word, quote, other, unquote, in four places in these verses without warrant, saying, for example, that by him, quote, all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth, unquote. That is very disturbing and downright fraudulent because the Greek simply does not
1: have the word other there in any extant manuscript, and it isn't possible to translate the verse that way. The Jehovah's Witness Bible is not a translation of these verses. It's a fabrication of a new set of verses that say something very different. So getting back to our discussion about the real Bible, if we're going to do justice to the passage, we must
0: ask what Paul means by the term firstborn. And to find out, the first principle of hermeneutics would say that we need to look at the rest of Scripture. Exactly.
1: And when we look to the rest of Scripture, the answer isn't hard to find. The firstborn speaks about the one who has priority. The firstborn son is the one who is responsible to lead the family if the father dies. He's the one who is to receive a special blessing and a double portion of the inheritance. We can also see that the word connoted something very different to the Jews at that time because the nation of Israel itself is called God's firstborn in Exodus 4 verse 22 and Jeremiah 31 verse 9. We also see the supremacy of Christ in Hebrews 1 verse 6, where God tells his angels to worship Christ, even though we're told in Exodus 34 verse 14 and elsewhere that we are only to worship the true God. And finally, if we read the next verse in Colossians 1 verse 18, we're told that Christ quote, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, unquote which again uses this term firstborn. But here it's clearly referring to Christ's position as the first to rise with a resurrection body. So the message is clear that when Paul refers to Christ as the firstborn in Colossians 1 verse 15, he does not mean that Christ was created.
0: He means that he has the preeminent position of a firstborn son. And we're told in John 3:16 that Jesus is God's one and only son. Which contrasts with the fact that all Christians are called adopted children of God.
1: That's right. And in addition to looking at the rest of Scripture, we can also look to other sources that tell us about the culture and history of the people at that time. That information provides the historical and cultural context for the passage, which is also important. When we do that, we find that the rabbis even called God himself, the firstborn of the world, unquote which completely shatters the idea that the word must imply a created being. Yeah, that is a very interesting piece of information. Let me give another example that shows how to make use of the cultural context. Please do.
0: Let's take a look at John chapter 3. Where Jesus tells Nicodemus that a man must be born again to see or enter the kingdom of heaven. That's right. In verse
1: 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And then in verse 5 he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And it's verse 5 that I want to look at right now.
0: There's been a lot of discussion about what Jesus meant by saying you must be born of water and the Spirit. There has been a lot said and written about this verse. The problem is to understand
1: what Jesus meant by being born of water. It's pretty well agreed that when he refers to being born of the Spirit, he's talking about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. With regard to being born of water, though, there has not been general agreement. People have suggested, for example, that it refers to natural birth by referring to the amniotic fluid that accompanies birth. Well, that's possible. It doesn't seem likely for two reasons. First, it would hardly be necessary for Jesus to specify that a person has to be physically born before he can be born again. That just doesn't make much sense. And secondly, there are no known sources from that time that refer to natural birth as being born of water. Well, it's also been suggested that the reference is to being baptized. That has been suggested. In fact, it's used by some to support the idea of baptismal regeneration, the completely unbiblical idea that getting baptized causes you to be born again. But even among those who do not believe in baptismal regeneration, it has been said to refer to Christian baptism. The problem with that view is that Christian baptism had not yet been introduced So how on earth could this have communicated such an idea to Nicodemus? Yeah, that that doesn't seem at all likely. No, it doesn't. We need to remember that Jesus was speaking to a particular person at a particular time. The conversation is recorded in Scripture for our benefit, but we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that Jesus was saying things to Nicodemus that were completely incomprehensible to him, just so that they would be recorded for others to read later. So what do you think being born of water refers to? John Murray wrote about this passage, and let me read what he wrote, because it's a wonderful example of making proper use of the historical and cultural context. But before I read it, I need to point out to our listeners that if they read the whole passage in John 3, they will find that this Nicodemus was a religious teacher and a member of the Jewish ruling council, which will be important to know. Murray wrote that, quote, we should keep in view the situation in which Jesus spoke these words— He was engaged in a dialogue with Nicodemus on a basic religious question. Jesus wanted to convey to Nicodemus an idea of religious import which would be directly relevant to the subject of interest and intelligible to Nicodemus. Now what religious idea would we expect to be conveyed to the mind of Nicodemus by the use of the word water? Of course, the idea associated with the religious use of water in the Old Testament and in that religious tradition and practice which provided the very context of Nicodemus' life and profession. The religious use of water, that is to say, the religiously symbolic meaning of water,
0: pointed in one direction, and that direction is purification. Our listeners may not know that the Old Testament mentions ceremonial cleansing with water. In Numbers 19, verse 9, we read about the water of cleansing, which is for purification from sin. It does help to have that background, and we see that the
1: idea being conveyed to Nicodemus was that a person must be cleansed of all sin and be born of the Spirit. This also ties back into the prophecy of Ezekiel 36, as we noted in session 41. In verses 25-27, through God says that, "...I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols." I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws." Wayne Grudem makes this point also in his systematic theology
0: text. That is a great example of using the historical and cultural context to properly understand a verse. But we're out of time now, so I would like to encourage our listeners to email their questions and comments to info at org. and I look forward to continuing this discussion next time. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine how to properly understand the Bible. And we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center.